Hey, good morning. If this is your first time joining us, I am so pumped that you're here. If you're tuning in online, hey, we are waving at you and sending our, our warmth and compassion, and we're glad that you're tuning in. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in to us, we're glad you're here as well. Uh, what a time to really be living, amen? So much excitement around every single day. It's just, uh, it's just great. It's fantastic, right? You never know what tomorrow might bring, and truly, we're, we're living day by day. It's fantastic. God is almost teaching us how to take each day by faith. Just yesterday, I was sitting down, I was sitting in my favorite coffee shop, uh, up and coming, and I'm, I'm kind of going through the text and further praying through it, and, and over in the corner I see two young guys, probably no older than their freshman year in college, and they have their Bibles, and they have journals, and they have... Uh, other, some other devotional guides. They have pens, and they're sitting down to, to study the Bible together, and I'm thinking, okay, man, they beat me here, right? Because I have my Bible, and okay, so there's three of us, and then I turn to my right, and there's another young man, and he's got his Bible and a journal, and I'm just thinking, oh, man, we're about to have a Bible study. This is great, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, you know, uh, my, uh, my natural thought is, well, what are they doing here? You know, because you can't just show up to read the Bible in, in public, right? You, you always have to be somewhat skeptical. What are, what are you doing in my territory, right? This is my area. Why are you here, right? And I start to hear them kind of talk about just how crazy it is, the time that we're living in. And these are young guys trying to figure out what it is that the future might hold for them. And, I mean, I, I definitely, I'm sorry, I will, I will confess to y'all, I was eavesdropping. And they, one, one of them had this great line, which was, you know, no matter how uncertain the times are, at least there's one thing that's certain, and it's God. And isn't that great? I mean, they might not have, um, they, they, they might be on their journey of truly understanding at their age who God is and how good he is, right? But they've got the premise, the main premise, which is no matter how uncertain things are, God is certain in his love for us. And so we're in a sermon series, Faces of Grace, and we're looking at these people in the Bible who aren't unlike you and I because they're, they're not perfect. And I think that's some good news that the people we read about in the Bible aren't perfect because I know, by show of hands, I'm just kidding, I won't have you do what Nelson did, <laughs> that I am not perfect. And yet I praise the Lord that he can use somebody as inherently flawed as me to proclaim some good news. And so today, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me again, as Bob read, Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at a passage that is quite interesting. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Luke is in the New Testament. You have two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you open kind of randomly towards the latter fourth of your Bible, you might find some Gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or or you might have first Romans or Acts, Romans, First Corinthians. Just start maneuvering around, and you'll stumble on Luke. And Luke is a historian; he's a physician, and he tells us at the beginning of his account of the life of Jesus that he has searched out these things so that he can present them with certainty. Man, that's some good news. What we're going to be reading is not some fable that has just been passed down from family to family that becomes kind of status 
status quo truth. It's undeniable truth because my great-grandfather believed it and his great-grandfather believed it. No, he's searched these things out. And so he can, with confidence, present them to us as some good news, some truth. And in Luke chapter 7, he records an account of a Pharisee has requested Jesus to come and spend some time at his house. Now, I don't know about you, but in the South, we tend to have some, some customs when we invite somebody into our home. Now, it varies from house to house. If you were to go to my grandparents' house on the south side of Atlanta into Peachtree City, and you showed up, you'd be greeted with a big southern smile and, hey, we're so glad you're here, and they'd welcome you into their home, and they'd ask if they could get you something to drink. And it might be something that even my grandparents wouldn't drink, but they'll have it just for guests, right? And, and then they might invite you out to their front porch because you sit on the front porch and they've, they've got a high IQ mind because they've got fans on their front porch. But there's just kind of this custom of welcoming somebody into your home. If you were to come over to our house, we would, we would say, okay, you know, you'd see very quickly that our shoes are by the front door or, or by the back door, and you'd step in, and you might be inclined to just say, okay, this is, I'm, I'm picking up. I'm picking up what you guys have as customs, and then you might see me run into, I'm a terrible host, so I'm trying hard. You might see me run into the kitchen, which is about a five-step walk from our front door, and, and, and say, do you want something? I don't even have anything to offer, but I will walk to the gas station if that's what it takes to get you something, because I want to be a good host, right? And so there is a Pharisee. In fact, in the other Gospels, we find that his name is Simon, and he's asked Jesus to come over to his house because as a Pharisee, he's got some questions for Jesus. See, Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's no older than the age of 30. And Simon is somewhat questionable. He's, he's somewhat, uh, what, what's, what's the word? He's, he's hesitant on some of the things that Jesus is doing. See, if you wanted to become somebody of note, if you wanted to get a good following on social media, or um, you wanted to, to be able to monetize your influence, which is what is very common nowadays, right? You would stick to something that is very on-brand, right? You'd kind of find your niche, and then you would just capitalize on it time and time and time again. And Pharisees had this niche of being these religious leaders, and they cared so much about trying to get out from under the oppression of the Roman regime that they built a hedge around God's law, thinking that if we can just somehow get someone to accidentally, maybe, follow God's law for a day, then the Messiah would come and deliver us from this Roman oppression. So they had some good intentions, but along the way they got lost and they started to hold everyone to their standard. And here comes Jesus, and he's doing something radical. I mean, it's beyond belief. He's sitting and eating with sinners, with tax collectors, with drunkards, with ladies of the night. He's sitting with people that Pharisees would not associate with. He's eating with them. And now I don't know about you, but when you have a meal with someone, it's a quite um, transparent, authentic connection. Because you're eating. You might get something stuck in your teeth. You ever have a, a meal with someone and, and you're so terrified of letting them know that they have something in their teeth, but you can't even concentrate on the conversation anymore because it's just there? 
Or they have a, they have a bogey, and you're just like, man, how do I? So you just start scratching your nose, thinking that maybe they'll pick up on it, and they don't. And you're just now, it's, you, you have no idea what's been said the past 10 minutes because you can't focus. I mean, it is full-on transparency to eat with someone. It's, you, you let your guard down. You take down your walls, right? There's a reason why animals don't eat unless they feel safe. There's a reason why animals won't eat unless they feel safe, because you're vulnerable when you're eating. And Jesus is eating with groups of people that nobody would even come close to in his culture. And so Simon, this Pharisee, invites him over to his house. It says in verse 36, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting to dine with him, him being Jesus, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Notice the immediate action. Jesus just comes into the house and he reclines at the table. He's, we're not told that Simon brings him to the table. No, Jesus just comes and immediately is reclining at the table. And in verse 37, And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with perfume. Simon has just invited this very well-renowned, he's got such a following that he can't even go into certain cities because they want to hear the good news that he's proclaiming. That God loves you. That God is, is, a, is, is a God that's going to bring salvation to you. That the kingdom of God is at hand. That is what Jesus is going around and preaching. In fact, Jesus is doing something so radical that even John the Baptist is starting to have doubts on who Jesus is. John the Baptist, he's in prison because he has preached against, uh, against Herod and Herod's uh, relationships and, and some of the actions that Herod has done. And, and he's in prison and he hears of Jesus and he asks two of his disciples to go and question Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And Jesus' response is, tell John this, the good news, the gospel is preached to the poor. The lame are healed. The dead are are resurrected. The lepers are cleansed. Tell John that. Because that's the news. That's what Jesus is going around and doing. And here Simon invites Jesus into his home and he doesn't go through proper hospitality protocol. You can see the type of relationship or the type of place that Simon has for Jesus in his mind. Now in Jesus' day, the protocol for hospitality was you would come in and if you were wealthy or you were somebody of note, you would have some indentured servants and so you would have your servants wash your guests' feet. But if you couldn't afford that, you would wash your guests' feet. You would go through this very, um, very warm, very welcoming hospitality protocol. Simon doesn't do that. And so here comes this woman. She's a sinner is what Simon says, is what this Pharisee says. And she is going through the hospitality protocol. In fact, we know that she didn't just crash the party. It's not like you guys ever have a friend where you just knew you could show up to their house. You don't even have to knock on the door. You just walk in. And you just, you walk in and you might not even, it might be early in the morning and you just, 
you know they're still asleep, and it, does, it doesn't even matter. You don't go and wake them up. You just go check their fridge because they have better snacks than you. You ever, ever have a friend like that? Or you go over to their house, and you just, it's early, but the sun's already beaten down, and so you just say, you know what? I'm not waking them up. I'm hopping in their pool. It's not like this woman just shows up and crashes the party. No, she heard that Jesus was going to be at Simon's house. See, in verse 45, after Jesus gives a parable, he's telling Simon, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. She was there when Jesus got there. She heard that Jesus was coming to this house, and she needed to get close to the man who's proclaiming good news. And so she shows up, and she goes through the protocol. In verse 38, it says, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. But Simon, in verse 39, says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, how would he know that? How, how would he know that? How would he just outwardly know that she has to be a sinner? Well, there's a, there's a well-known story in Jewish culture where a mother had two sons, and both of them were granted the position of high priest. And the Day of Atonement, which, which uh, was a Jewish day of cleansing the sanctuary, it was the most sacred day in the Old Testament Jewish lifestyle. It was the most sacred day. The entire camp would gather around the sanctuary. You didn't miss out. And so the high priest would go into the most holy place, the inner compartment of the sanctuary on that day to perform the final cleansing of the sanctuary. And one of the sons, it was his day to function as the high priest that day, but up to, uh, during the buildup, he became unclean, ceremonially unclean. Whether that's uh, he, had, you know, he had somebody who accidentally, they were singing incredibly loud, and you know some some uh, liquid from inside of their body came out of their mouth and landed on them, or who knows what it was, but he became ceremonially unclean. And so the other brother stepped in, and somebody asked the mother, can you imagine being the mother in this situation? How esteemed you must have felt, your two sons functioning as high priest. So somebody asks the mother, how is it that you are so blessed? And her response was, the roof of my house has never seen my head. That was her response. To me, that made no sense. So I had to Google. I had to do some further research. But in Jewish culture, if you were a woman, you would not untangle your hair. You would not let your hair down in public. It was only in your home. And so what she was saying is that she had taken such a commitment to living a holy lifestyle that the roof of her house had not even seen her let her hair down. That's the notion of holiness to some Jews during the time of Jesus. So how would Mary wash Jesus' feet? See, she didn't show up prepared. She didn't think that she was going to have to be functioning as the host. She thought, Simon, she's, this isn't her house. Simon invited Jesus to his house. So why, why is she having to do it? Well, she's giving Jesus his rightful place. You see, she is 
so frustrated. I can imagine. Could you imagine being so frustrated that the person who has proclaimed good news to you, the person who is proclaiming that you have access to God because God loves you, that there is forgiveness for sins, and here is a religious leader who is not giving the man who is proclaiming this it's his rightful place. So she's unprepared, so she works with what she has. You ever been to a Pathfinder Camporee? That's like the definition of Pathfinder Camporees. You just work with what you got. It seems like it always rains. It seems like the, the, there's always some hiccup. And so she, she was probably the first Pathfinder because she works with what she has. She has an alabaster vial of perfume. Maybe that was to be a gift for him. But now she is behind his feet. She's wetting his feet. She's washing his feet with her tears. But how does she dry it with her hair? She lets her hair down. She publicly humiliates herself for Jesus. She publicly humiliates herself. Simon, he sees this, and so he, he just can't come to any other conclusion as to why somebody would publicly humiliate themselves for some Jewish rabbi, and so he deems her a sinner. Surely she's a sinner. That's why she's willing to do that, because she's done other humiliating things. And so Jesus, doing what Jesus does, comes up with a parable. In verse 40, it says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He says, come on, I'm ready to listen. Lay it on me. And Jesus says, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon, he's smart. You don't become a Pharisee by not going through an educational system. And so he answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. Simon knows the answer. He knows it logically. He knows the truth with his mind, but his heart is still not transformed. He can give an answer. He knows what scripture says. He's a professional in understanding scripture. He's got the Old Testament, his Bible of the day, memorized. And yet, his heart is not changed. And so then Jesus does something. Oh man, this is amazing. Verse 44, he turns to the woman. Jesus turns to the woman. Now in Jesus' day, to lock eyes with a woman was not a common occurrence. But Jesus turns to this woman and then he says to Simon. So he's looking at Mary, and he's talking to Simon. And this is what he says. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. See, in this account, three times she is mentioned as a sinner. And three times Jesus mentions her forgiveness. Because your sin cannot outweigh God's grace. Paul, writing in Romans, says, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Your sin will ever, never outweigh God's grace. So three times, her sin, her being a sinner, being an outcast, being marginalized, being the least of these is brought up. And three times, Jesus meets that with his response of forgiveness for sins, because that's Jesus. But what would bring her to this humiliating action that she has just gone through to exalt Christ if it's not gratitude? You see, gratitude is this interesting thought. It's this interesting philosophy. I don't know about you, but I struggle to receive compliments. As a pastor, it's, it's, you never know how to respond to that was a great sermon because you want to lift up Christ. You don't want to say, oh, yes, thank you so much. I worked incredibly hard on it. But you also don't want to belittle the work that God has done through you. Sometimes when we give gifts, we don't want any acknowledgement. And so gratitude, there's almost like this weird uh, dance that gratitude takes. But when you understand a price that has been paid for you, your life can be nothing more than gratitude. Your response can be nothing more than gratitude. This is Maximilian Kolbe. He was a Polish Franciscan monk. And World War II starts to happen, and the occupation of the Nazi regime starts to multiply to, to Europe. And he gets offered an opportunity to claim German ancestry. He just has to sign a signature saying that he is of German descent and he'll never be bothered. But because of his commitment to Jesus, he can't do that because he's from Poland. And so he doesn't sign. And then he starts to publish tracts and articles against the Nazi regime. And he becomes such a thorn in the side of the Nazis that he becomes prisoner 1667 of Auschwitz. And while he's there... There is a, a botched escape attempt. A man tries to flee Auschwitz and is caught. And so the, the head German soldier who is overseeing Auschwitz wants to make an example so he doesn't have to constantly be, be dealing with escaped attempts. And so he comes up with this idea. We will pick ten random individuals and we'll put them in a bunker, an underground bunker, and we will let them starve to death as an example. And so the German officer starts to point as, he, as they have all of the, the Jewish prisoners line up and they start to point, picking ten. And the officer picks one and the man cries out because he has a wife and he has kids. And Maximilian Kolbe steps in and says, I'll take his place. And so Maximilian Kolbe goes into the bunker with nine other prisoners. And in two weeks, he's the only one left. In fact, each time the German guards come to check and see if he has died, he is kneeling in the middle of his bunker with just complete peace. In fact, they get so impatient that they come in to kill him by lethal injection, and as they walk in, he just lifts his right arm to make it easier. Because for him, the commitment to follow Christ meant this, to give up oneself for the betterment of others. The man that Maximilian Kolbe traded places with lived to be 93. He has great-grandchildren and great-grandchildren. and his, his line will go on because of this sacrifice. Mary is in Simon's house, the Pharisee's house, because she understands that a price is going to be paid for her behalf. 
She understands that this man, Jesus, is God in the flesh because no one has the authority to speak like him. Not one. She's never heard anyone speak like him. And so her heart is changed. Dr. Christine Pohl, as she writes in this wonderful book, Living into Community, she says, if we really understand our lives as redeemed by costly grace, then our primary response can only be gratitude. For those of us transformed by grace, gratitude is not merely an act or an attitude. It is our identity. We live as redeemed people, bought at a price. Though we're not perfect, though we, are, we have no claim to eternal life because our actions speak otherwise, but because of Jesus' love for us. The Apostle Paul, as he was converted, as he persecuted Christians and then met Jesus on the road and, and became a, a champion of, of the Christian faith as he would travel and plant churches. He'd plant communities of faith, brothers and sisters. He would often encourage them to be thankful. As early Christians were learning what it meant to be new and a transformed community, Paul frequently urges them to give thanks or to be thankful. Are we a thankful person? See, Mary was willing to exalt Christ even at the uh, expense of her humiliation by letting down her hair. Simon the Pharisee, he's on the fence. He doesn't want to commit. He wants to hear out Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to, he wants to lease the car before buying it. He wants to see if this will benefit him. Mary, she's all in to the point where she's willing to, to give up whatever it takes so that he can be lifted up. We as a church, we have an opportunity in this, in this day and age. So many people are looking for some good news. Are you tired of all the bad news? Because I know I am. We're in some need of some good news. But there's good news. is that Jesus is no longer in the grave. And so to what extent are we willing to go to uplift him? Because he says, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's not us. Praise the Lord. I'm not, I do not have the beauty that Christ does. It's not on me to draw people to Jesus. It's on him because that's what he says. But I'm to lift him up. I'm to exalt him, to give him that rightful place. And so are we willing to give him that rightful place? Are we willing to allow our schedules to be rearranged to exalt Christ? Are we willing to allow our finances to be arranged to exalt Christ? Are we willing to allow our friendships to be rearranged to exalt Christ? How could we not be willing to do that with the cost that he paid? Our whole MO should be one of gratitude. Because the only reason why I'm here, I, I do not deserve to be here. Simple. Most people in my neighborhood, they don't, they don't live past the age of 25. I have so many friends and so many uh, colleagues that I went to school with that, that are not here today. The world does not have any promises of long life. The only reason why we're here is by the grace of God. That's it. Because of his love for us. So who are we? Are we the Pharisee? Seeing if Jesus is going to benefit our lives? Or are we the woman? Willing to go through whatever length it takes 
so that Christ can have his rightful place. Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, we recognize that we are unworthy of any claim to your love. But Lord, your love is unconditional. And so that means there's nothing that we could do to earn your love. But that also means there's nothing we could do to unearn your love because you freely give it. Lord, we thank you for this woman's example. We thank you that she was bold enough to exalt Christ, even at, her, at the expense of her own humiliation. Lord, we thank you for the grace. So show us how we might struggle to let our identity be one of gratitude. For really, we should be the most thankful people, and we should live every day with thanksgiving because you have given us another day to lift you up. Lord, I picture heaven when we get there and we get to see your amazing face, your, those eyes of love and compassion and your smile. But I can't help but wonder, after running up and embracing you with a hug, who we will turn and see that is there simply because we took your challenge to take up our cross and we told them about your love for them. Lord, what a day it will be to see somebody in heaven who is there because we shared of your love to them. But what a better moment will be when they turn to somebody they shared your love with. Show us how we can be that type of people, for we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.